Good morning again. Welcome to Community Alliance Church. I was going to wear my shorts this morning, but I noticed last week that I didn't have near the legs Ted did, so I thought I would just go with this outfit. I don't know if you're like me. I'm sure you're all saying, Lord, I hope not. But Christmas cards, birthday cards, you know where you get a lot of them all at the same time. I hope you're not one of those persons that just simply open it up to see if you get anything, you know, open the envelope to see if you missed something that they were supposed to have tucked in there and miss what it is they're saying in that first part or the words that are there. I don't know if you remember even getting a handwritten letter by someone. Many of us hardly ever get those anymore. But we kind of bypass the opening remarks because they're dearly friend or dear friend or I hope I haven't seen you in a while, I haven't seen you for a while. And then you kind of get into the meat of the letter. By doing that, you every once in a while would really miss some good things and some really important things that you may need to see. Be easy for us to read the first couple of words of 1 Thessalonians, our new series, and miss some powerful things that God wants to say to us. If you're new at CAC, whether this Sunday's your first or you've been here for the last few, welcome. I hope someone has already made you feel welcome. If there's anything we can do, questions we can answer, information we can help you get, please let us know. Let us know you're here. Visitor card in front of you there somewhere. Uh, somebody out in the lobby. Help, let us help you. Let us uh, get you connected in some way or the other. If you're a regular attender, invite someone. 75 to 80% of people say they would go to church if someone just invited them. So invite them. Three out of four will say yes. And tell them that we're starting a new series. This is what we do on Sunday morning, and, and maybe you'll want to learn more about the Bible, and I'd love to have you come with me. There are usually three styles of sermons on a Sunday morning in almost every church. One is topical. It'll do finances, family, marriage, the how-tos, the ups and downs of life. Another style is liturgical. Whatever happens to be that on the liturgy calendar, they'll do it for that day or that time of month. And And there's the other one called expository, which is taking a book of the Bible and walking all the way through it. Had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to teach a class at Grove City College for one of the professors that goes here, Dr. Kim Miller. And I was talking about the different styles of sermons on a Sunday morning and how to communicate. The class was on communication. And and one of the girls raised her hand and said, I grew up in a church where I felt like every single Sunday was a pastor's opinion on a given subject or a motivational talk of some kind. And and then a verse thrown in every once in a while, so it would sound scriptural. For the last 10 or 12, 15 years possibly, I've done expository. I'll take a book of the Bible and go all the way through it. Every once in a while, we'll break it up with topics. But if you're new, I want you to know right up front, this is what we do. And this is how I communicate best, by taking a book of the Bible and walking our way through it. This morning, we're going to begin a brand new series for the next few weeks, and maybe a couple of months in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, like our study in Peter that we just finished a few weeks ago, I'm not going to deal with every single verse, but a lot of the topics, again, out of an incredibly rich book. A little bit unlike Peter, though, I'm going to take some of the topics and some of the verses in 2 Thessalonians and deal with them in 1. So if you have your Bibles this morning, take them out and turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, New Testament. Go past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Corinthians. Keep going for a while until you get to 1 Thessalonians and then stop there. If you have an iPad or an iPhone, version, go there. I really want to make sure that you're in the Word of God. Now, you may see it on the screen every once in a while. That's awesome. 
But I'd love for you to bring your Bibles. Next Sunday morning, going to have sermon notes to kind of catch you up. This is a two-part sermon between now and next Sunday. Kind of catch you up, but it's a great place to start in your words so that you can underline certain sections to remember them and retain them as we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter and just look with me as you see the meat that is here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because the gospel has come to you, not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. You became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from wrath. Right at the get-go, you see something a little bit different. If you know anything about the New Testament, Paul wrote a majority of it, and almost always he starts with naming himself and usually standing alone. I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In this case, right from the get-go, you notice something unique. He starts simply with three words, three people that he identifies. Paul, Timothy, and Silas. When you think of a well-known church, you normally think of the main pastor. Even a church with multiple pastors usually has one name that stands out. When I say to you, Saddleback, you think possibly of Rick Warren. Lost his son a few weeks ago to suicide. You may have been aware of and hopefully praying for him and his family. Willow Creek, Bill Hybels. North Point, Andy Stanley. When you think of Olstein's church, Swindoll's church, Max Licato's church, they're all pretty much known by that one main pastor, but every single one of them knows that it takes more than them to manage and run and minister to the organization that they're a part of. Paul, right up front, makes it very clear that there are other people involved in the success of his journeys. It's easy to elevate Paul. He stands out. Everybody knows the name. You hear the Apostle Paul everywhere you go, and so often when you read the New Testament, you attribute it to the Apostle Paul, and you talk about these great churches and his missionary journey, and you so often stop with Paul. Paul, in this context, says right up front, hey, it's not just me. There are other people involved in this ministry, Silas and Timothy. He simply reminds us at the very outset that there are other people involved. I love being a senior pastor. I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. But hopefully you know that there is absolutely no way this church could function without so many people in so many capacities. Last Sunday morning when Ted was preaching, I stayed in the first service and walked back in the hall just to greet people and thank them for serving in so many capacities around the way. And, and one of the gals said, look, you're not speaking today. Come and help us. We're desperately needing people in this ministry or in nursery and, and all of those things. There are just so many people that are involved in so many capacities. We're unbelievably blessed with ministry leaders and support team and volunteers. If you have children in our church, did you know that it takes 90 different people 
to be involved on a Sunday morning in just children's ministries in our church. 90. Not two, four, seven, 12, 90 different people to be involved in that ministry. It's one of the reasons that sad little face that was, was walking back there looking for people to help for the summer. We're extremely blessed at Community Alliance Church and children's ministries and youth ministries and adult ministries and worship ministries and administrative responsibilities. Incredible supportive team. Paul says right up front, look, I need you to know we're not in this alone. Whether you're running an organization or a business, whether your name's on the door and big letters are on the outside of the company organization, you know and I know, both of us, that it takes so many people involved in the ministry opportunities. It involves in your workplace, and hopefully you, like Paul, elevate them so that they understand their responsibility is that important and that they're involved in the process of making it what it is. The second thing you notice in this particular chapter is the way Paul starts not only by identifying these three people, but who he's writing to. It's the church of the Thessalonians. That's very specific, the church of the Thessalonians. A number of images come to your mind when I mention the word church. If people were to ask you, what are you going to do Sunday morning? You'd say, I go to church. You normally would think of the building. I ask you at work tomorrow, what did you do yesterday? I went to church. And they would normally attribute it to a building. And that's true. It is what we call the church. Many people see it as a number of churches. Others see it and understand it as the full body of Christ. If you are a member of the family of God, you've embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're a part of the church. When Paul talks later about the church being raptured and coming into the presence of God, he's not talking about individual congregations, but the church of Jesus Christ, all those who know his name. And all those images are what we think of when we think of the church. So often you've heard pastors say, and rightfully so, that when they talk about church in the New Testament, it's always a house church. Many times, yes, but not always that way. The word that's used here is ecclesia, which originally means this, a gathering of citizens called out by a herald from their homes to some public place. A gathering of citizens called out by someone, a herald of some kind, from their homes into a public place. When Paul uses the word and talks about the church of the Thessalonians here, he has a similar concept in mind of the Old Testament when they would call the people of God out of their homes and out of their tents to a public place to praise God and to hear his word declared. When, when Moses would do that, he wouldn't go from tent to tent. He would call them all out. So many of the Old Testament prophets, even those small prophets that you're not familiar with, all of them, when they would do this, they would call the people of God out of their homes, out of their tents, into some common place, some public place, so that everybody would have the opportunity to praise God, to worship Him, and to hear His Word declared. That's what we do on Sundays. We're a gathering of people called out of our homes and workplaces, called to come together and meet with and hear from God. God is the convener of this event, this gathering. And the invitation is open to all who will come. That's one of the reasons that why what we do on Sunday morning is so important and so special. And when I understand that it's God who is the convener of this organization, that God is the one who calls us together, that God is the one who wants us to come and to hear from Him, that God is the one who wants to meet with us so that we can tell Him how much we adore Him, when I understand and fully embrace that, then this gathering on Sunday morning becomes a priority and not just something that Christians do on Sunday. Do you understand how important that is? It's an incredibly important understanding to process so that we get a full, clear understanding of why we do what we do on Sunday morning. 
God is a convener of this event. The invitation is open to all. We want to hear from him. He wants to hear from us. And he calls us out of our workplaces and out of our homes to come together as a family of God, to give him praise and adoration, as well as to hear from him. The other thing that stands out in these first few verses is the central focus of the church's existence. Notice as he writes these first few verses the centrality of the Trinity. The central focus on God the Father, the Lordship of Christ, and the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 3. We remember before God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that when brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. Because the gospel didn't come to you simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. For many Americans, the view of the church has shifted from God-centered to need-centered. Now, we do try to meet every need we possibly can, but if we're not careful, it can shift to focus. People leave a certain church or attend another church by saying, well, my old church just wasn't meeting my needs. And that may be true. Or we elevate a service by saying things like, that service just didn't hit. I didn't get anything out of it today. Or the opposite of that, the service really blessed me today. I understand those statements, but if we're not careful, we can view church in terms of what it can do for us as opposed to why we're here. Now you've heard the phrase, it's not about you, right? John 3.16 says it is. It is about you. God so loved you that he sent his one and only son. Christ died for you. Jesus loves you. Christ came for you. And we need to understand that, that we are that valuable in God's eyes that he sent his one and only son so that we can have life and have it forever. God loves you. Christ came for you. Jesus died for you. All of that's important. But if we're not careful, church and the ministry that it provides becomes all about us and not about its intention to be about Him. See, for many people, God is widely viewed as a projection of the human mind. Like the ancient writer Protagoras who said, man is the measure of all things. Discussions about right and wrong, law and morality, good and evil are no longer discussed with reference to God, but with reference to human beings and human society becomes the baseline. When viewed from that perspective, the church becomes nothing more than a human organization created by human beings to meet human needs. Over against that, Paul says, look, I want you to know from the very get-go, with a resounding emphasis that I can possibly give, that God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit is what the church is all about. He reminds us that the church, whether in Thessalonica or in Butler, Pennsylvania, is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church doesn't exist and certainly has no life apart from God without His saving work. That means the church is not just another social organization. It is the people of God called together by him for worship and glory and commissioned to spread the gospel, the good news about God, to the ends of the earth, to go, as Ted said last Sunday morning. It is God who calls us to follow, worship, and serve him. God does not exist for the sake of the church. Rather, the church exists for the praise and glory of God. I understand that not everyone is there, but when you grasp that and fully understand it, then the Sunday morning experience becomes at least what God designed it to be and wants it to be in some respects. When we fully understand that, we will think of the worship service 
less and less in terms of what it does for us and more and more an opportunity to glorify, praise, and worship God. It becomes less about what songs or what style of music we use and more about how can I use all of those mediums, the songs that I know and the ones that I don't, to give glory and praise and honor to God. When I fully understand all of this, We'll consider the ministries of the church less and less as a means of meeting my needs and more and more an opportunity to serve others as disciples and servants of Jesus Christ. When I fully understand this, we'll view gathering together with other believers for worship less and less an intrusion on our weekend and more and more as an opportunity to declare our allegiance to the one true and living God. What we do with joining churches all across this globe is we say in a public, verbal, confident way, we follow God Almighty. There are others that are bowing five times a day to give their allegiance to someone else. And when we gather on a Sunday morning in this corporate setting, we are saying as a group, joining with all thousands of churches all across this globe, we follow God Almighty. And we're declaring our allegiance to him. Not to Muhammad, not to Buddha, not to anybody else. We are declaring our allegiance to God. And when we worship on a Sunday morning, that's what we're doing. And you get the opportunity to do that corporately. Can you do it privately? Absolutely. But God calls us together every once in a while to this experience where we as a group give our allegiance and declaration to God. When we understand that, we adopt an understanding of a God-centered than a, rather than a man-centered view of the church. And we begin to live out what it really means to be a church that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many times, for those of us in full-time ministry, we make the mistake of thinking everybody that comes on a Sunday morning gathering is at the same point. They're not. But our goal is to help you understand that. I read tons of articles. I get emails all the time from different leaders and certainly different organizations. And there are so many things they'll say. Instead of doing church, be the church. Instead of doing church, go out and be the church. Totally get that. But it's not either or. It's both and. We get to do church. We get to be the church of Jesus Christ. And then we get to go out and be the church of Jesus Christ, making a difference in the world around us. Another thing you can't help but notice in this opening letter of Paul is his gratitude. This is a guy who's been through really deep waters. But every time he talks to a church or writes to a church, he talks with a grateful heart. I'm one of those rare pastors, I believe, at least in the CNMA, in our district, I've been here all of my life, who's had four great churches that I have absolutely loved being a part of. Every once in a while, so often in my ministry experience throughout the years, I'll talk with guys who have been burnt by a church, hurt by a church, deeply wounded by a church, let go by a church. And it taints them when they talk about the church or ministry. I'm very blessed. I, I love being a part of Newcastle First Alliance, Beaverdale Alliance, Cattersport Alliance, and I'm so delighted to be here. Paul had some really rough times in ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, all over Corinthians, but in Chapter 6 and a couple of other places in chapter 4, Paul is really honest about the price that he paid to be in ministry and the price that he paid to be the leader of the church. He said, I, I've, I've not only lost a lot of sleepless nights, but I've been beaten, I've been jailed, I've been left for dead, 
I've been shipwrecked. I mean, the list is endless of the risks that Paul took and the price that he paid for the sake of the church. But instead of concentrating on that, he shares it honestly, but almost every time he starts with the church, he said, I just want you to know how grateful I am for you. Doesn't mention or make them feel guilty about the price that he pays so that they could be a church and establish as a church. He just says, I want you to know right up front, I am so delighted in you. You know this, that life has a lot to do with perspective. How you look at life and how you look at circumstances. Some see the glass half full, others always see it half empty. Some are always criticizing and critiquing everything, never satisfied, while others look for the positive instead of always seeing the negative. Those of you who are raising kids, it's easy to see both aspects. It's easy to see all the negative traits that they have. You don't have to teach them how to be bad. They already know that. You spend your life teaching them how to be good, but so often, if we're not careful, and I'm Certainly the king of this at times. You'll see the negative before the positive. How you view your job. I don't like this or I don't like that. You know what? You have a job. How you view your mate is so easy. I mean, I've, I've said to my wife, it drives me crazy sometimes when, when men do so many stupid things or you at least notice the stupid things that I do. What makes it even worse is when I give you so much ammunition because I do so many stupid things. I love the fact that she sees all the positive instead of all the negative. And believe me, there's a negative that goes with it. How you view your kids, how you view your job, how you view your mate, how you look at the world around you. Isn't it a great day? Well, yeah, but it's going to rain. But it's nice now. Enjoy the now. But some people always see the negative aspects of life, all the things that pull you down. Paul begins this book and ends this book talking about gratitude. Talking about the joy of life. If anybody had a reason to complain about some of the tough issues of life and some of the demands and the price that he paid to be the leader of the church, you'd be overwhelmed. But he wasn't. He said in verse 2, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Look at verse 3 at what he's grateful for. And I want you to underline these three phrases. We remember before God our Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. I'm going to do two out of the three this morning, and next week, incredible analysis of what Paul describes as a great church. Your work produced by faith. Many see faith as an intellectual experience, an exercise where I just simply think, I understand, and I believe, and I hold on to that belief no matter what. And there's a lot of it that goes with that. But Paul sees here, as he describes it, faith as a vocation, a lifestyle, a course of conduct that springs from my life, that springs from my faith in Christ. Elton Trueblood wrote a book entitled Your Other Vocation. The thesis was this. Your primary vocation is a follower of Christ. How you make a living is your other vocation. Your primary vocation is a follower of Christ. How you make a living is your other vocation. If I were to ask you this morning, who are you? Many of you would define yourself and describe yourself by what you do for a living. I'm a pastor. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a farmer. I'm a mechanic. 
And, and many of you are. You do those things. The premise here is to see yourself and find your value and identity in the fact that when you come to faith in Christ, you're a son and a daughter of the living God. You earn an income as a doctor, a lawyer, a farmer, a mechanic. Do you see the difference? If you find your identity in what you do for a living, you have a hard time sometimes finding satisfaction in that and joy in that because the ups and downs that go with that. But so often when I ask people, who are you? They'll define themselves, describe themselves by what they do for a living. If you have faith in Christ, you've invited Jesus into your life, you're a son and a daughter of the living God. That's where you find your identity. That's where you find your value. The God of the universe loves to have me in his presence. The God of the universe calls me his son, calls you his daughter. Not too busy for me. As aware of my needs, knows every circumstance that I face. I can call him at any time. I can talk to him about anything. He's always available to me. He never seems to be tired of me coming. And he's the God of the universe. You imagine how much he has to do. But he's that interested in you. If you find your value and identity in what you do for a living, you're going to find that it's always going to be in flux. But when you find your value and identity in who you are as a son and a daughter of the living God, and you earn your income as those other things, it will impact how you look at life. You see, life has to consist more of more than work. Vince Lombardi, who we all know as the great legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, always started training camp with that rousing speech. He got everybody excited about what the year was going to hold. And then he finished usually by saying something like this. Remember, boys, at all times, God, your family, and the Green Bay Packers, and always in that order. That's a great line. God, your family, and the Green Bay Packers, and always in that order. Faith is vocation. Your work produced by faith keeps the relationships with God and others in high priority. It means I won't sacrifice either for the sake of a better job, more money, or personal prestige. Tony Campalo, in his book or article, I can't remember which one, I think it's a book called Who Switched the Price Tags, said, did you ever notice that it seems like somebody went into the department store of life in the middle of the night and switched all the price tags? And we find ourselves putting our efforts and money and resources and time and energy in things that really don't matter and things that really won't last. And the things that really are important, relationships and our kids and our relationship with God and the value of relationship with people somehow gets pushed aside for all these other things that really don't matter. Only when we get a real sense of faith as a vocation can we get our, our, our life in the right direction and get value in the right things. Sometimes we've got to work at our faith, don't you? When life comes at you and things don't make sense and the world seems to turn upside down, you've got to really work at having faith. It doesn't just come naturally. When the bottom falls out of your life and cancer comes and someone dies and a family member goes in another direction, you don't wake up, hey, okay, that's all right. Sometimes you've got to work at it. Confidence in God, never doubting in the dark what you know is true in the light. And sometimes you've got to work hard at it. But it's worth it. Paul said, I'm also thankful for your labor prompted by love. Not only does having faith take work at some times, so does love, doesn't it? Paul uses a Greek word here meaning toil and hard labor. He sees love as way more than a feeling. He sees it as an action. It's like the wife who says to her husband, don't just tell me you love me, let me see it. 
I want to know what it looks like. The love that Paul talks about here isn't related to emotions or feelings, but a choice to love. Even when I don't feel it, even if I don't get it in return. I know I'm a follower of Christ and I'm choosing to love. And to do that every once in a while, it takes an enormous amount of work and an enormous amount of effort. Because not everybody is easy to love like you are. The labor of love infers that we work at it. (coughs) Some people are very easy to love. And some people take a lot of work. Paul said, I love the fact that you work at loving. Best definition, obviously, is what he described for us in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, it really doesn't matter how well you speak. It really doesn't matter that you're a great order. What matters is if you love. Because if you don't love, all the species of the world really don't matter too much. If you could understand prophecy and all kinds of mysteries, you had enormous knowledge. And you couldn't wait to share the knowledge, but you did it without love. If you had a faith, it could move mountains. But if you didn't love, it really isn't that valuable. If you did serve humanity, you went all over the world making sure you gave out money and giving out resources and did all kinds of things to, to the poor and the needy, but you didn't do it with love, you didn't gain a whole lot. See, love is patient, very kind, not envious, not jealous, not proud. Not self-seeking or self-serving, it not easily angered, and it never, ever keeps score. Love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. To do that takes what? Work. It doesn't just happen naturally. Genuine love, God's love, doesn't always come easy. And it doesn't just happen. It takes work. And Paul says, I love the fact, along with Timothy and Silas, that you really do work at it. And you make it a part of your life. He talks about hope that we'll get to next Sunday morning. And then he describes for us one of the most unbelievable definitions are, I think, more than that, descriptions of what a great church looks like. And next week, I kind of want to lay that out and lay ourselves on top of it and see how well we do. This morning as we end, you have the opportunity to demonstrate love. Every so often, and I almost always tell you on phone tree on Saturday, so you know how to prepare on Sunday, but every so often we take a, a benevolent offering and meet the needs of people, whether it's physical, financial, emotional, Uh, whatever that may be. No obligation to give. You're visiting this morning. This is for us, our regular attenders. We just give you the opportunity if you want to respond to that and help them out. We're going to do it this morning as we sing and declare our allegiance again to God. And then we're going to demonstrate love. Father, I thank you for your word. I love your word. I'm delighted that you teach us so many things, things that we would easily overlook if we just read the few verses and and not understand the depth of what it is that you're trying to say. So we unpack this in these weeks and months together. May you speak to us in really profound ways. Ways that begin to change how we view our life, how we view church, how we view love, how we view our faith. How we view this experience on Sunday morning that is just so wonderful to be a part of. Bless us as we touch the lives of other people and help them out in a very tangible way. In the name of Jesus we pray.